You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. Every time you wanted to do one of these things, you needed to bespoke the tools to do it. And when that happens, it becomes impossible for media companies to be able to do these in an economical um, and efficient way. So the cost of all the projects that kind of grabbed the headlines in that world were absolutely phenomenal. Jason DePonte there, my guest on today's show, talking about some of the practical challenges that have really held back the evolution of true multi-touchpoint digital experiences. Hello, I'm Marek Pawłowski, founder of Mix. Now, if you've been listening for a while, uh, or you're someone who's participated at one of our Mex events over the last 15-odd years now, you'll know that multi-touchpoint experiences, those ones where several digital entities combine and create an experience which is greater than the sum of their parts, that's something that's really close to my heart. Uh, and I think they're close to Jason's too, which is why I was pretty excited to have him on the show and get to have a, a chat about all that. Now, Jason is currently the strategy principal at Us2, and he's someone who should know a thing or two about multi-touchpoint stuff. In fact, he's been giving talks and has led working groups on that topic um, at a whole bunch of MEX conferences going back quite a few years now, um, to the time when he was editor for BBC Mobile, uh, arguably one of the UK's, if not only the world's most visited news destinations, uh, as well as being the founder of his own design agency, The Swarm. And that history with media goes back even further with Jason. I mean, he spent time at The Economist and The Washington Post. In fact, he's got a great story for you in our chat about the role that good old Windows Notepad played in getting The Post started on the web in the very early days. Uh, in addition to all of that, and prior to us too, just prior to us too, he was the innovation manager for Transport for London, the organisation which looks after all the tubes and buses in the, the UK capital, if you're not from the UK and unfamiliar with them. Now, us too is kind of an interesting place in itself. This is where Jason works currently. And as an agency, I've always admired it for a couple of things. So firstly, they're one of the few agencies who've really made a venture business of their own stick. And if you don't know them for their client work, then you almost certainly know them for Monument Valley, this breathtakingly, beautifully crafted game that they made. But as much as what they've done with things like Monument Valley, it's how they've talked about what they've done. Us too has got this history of openness and, and sharing. Um, they do things like pulling back the lid on all of the stats for their gaming ventures in these really detailed, remarkably detailed and frank blog posts all about how that business went for them. And Jason and I talk a bit about that, not so much in the context of their inventions and games, but really about how that culture, how that approach to working uh, is also something which they strive to make a hallmark of their client work. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my chat with Jason DuPonte, uh, and I'll be back at the end with a few more ramblings for you on other things in the world of mechs. Here we go. So one of the things that I've always been curious about, and is something that I tend to ask people quite often on this show, is 
whether or not you can actually remember a defined point where you started to think of yourself as being a designer or someone interested in design. Well, I mean, those are two really different things, aren't they? I mean, I think I was always really interested in design. I think when I I actually started thinking about myself as a designer was not until I decided to open a design studio and said, yeah, Jason, you can do this. And, you know, that was in the early days of uh, running my own company, which is called The Swarm. And um, actually, I think when we met Merrick, that's what I was doing. And, um, you know, I had to have that conversation with myself to go, wait, okay, if you're going to run a design studio, you should probably be confident to think of yourself as a designer. But I think it takes a long time to go from interested in design, studying design, doing design to actually starting to use the title. And I think what I do now as well is, you know, largely design strategy. And um, someone said to me the other day, oh, she's an intern and she's great. And she said, um, I really like what you do. And uh, I've decided that I want to do what you do. So I think my goal is to become a junior strategist. And it struck me as interesting, right? Because I said, well, you know, I said, that's great. It's great to have the ambition. But I don't know if you can be a junior strategist. You kind of have to have done a lot of other things first, I think. Um, and there's researchers and there's analysts and all of this. So, and I, and I said to her, um, I said, to be honest, I said, I didn't call myself a strategist until I started working here. And by then I had almost 20 years, you know, career experience under my belt. I said, so I'm not telling you that you can't be a strategist, but it's one of these things that takes a long time. And I think, you know, whether you call yourself a designer or a strategist or, you know, a sort of creative of any sort, there's always a sort of, um, oh, can I really, can I really call myself this? Or uh, is there an imposter syndrome type of thing going on? I mean, perhaps it's indicative of a field as a whole that is still young enough and evolving quickly enough that we have these discussions still over definitions and, and titles. And you're right. And in fact, I mean, the, the answer that I've had from quite a few people in the conversations I've had on this podcast kind of echoes what you're saying there about whether or not, even though if it's someone looking to you for your skills or sort of looking from the outside in, they may consider you to be a designer. Often when you're working within that field yourself, there's a lot of nuance attached to those different definitions. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, there's something quite lofty sounding about the word designer, particularly if you're interested in design. It's like, at what point do I go from like pixel pushing actually through to design with a capital D as like a craft and an art form, you know, and, and, and that's, uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe when I see, uh, something I worked on in the design museum, I'll think, oh, yeah, I can actually do this now. But there's an inherent um, insecurity, I think, in anyone who's a creative. And it's, it's not to say that we're all insecure weirdos, but you know, you're know, you always putting a little bit of yourself into any work that you work on. You're always putting your thought, your mark into the work. And so you're always putting yourself out there a little bit. And so there's always this vulnerability that um, you, you know, oh, is this quite right? Am I really ready to call myself this? Is that the sense that creativity is inherently about risk yeah i mean i haven't thought about it that way but i think you're right um it's you know creativity is always about changing things right it's about bringing about change it's about improving things hopefully um and you know there's always a risk that it you know won't result the way that you want it to um you know you're experimenting you're trying you're learning and i think that's one of the things about digital design that's particularly interesting is you're not just 
I don't know, flinging a campaign concept out onto a billboard and, and hoping that it works or uh, making a TV show and, you know, six months later, a year later, seeing it on TV and hoping that the ratings are good. With digital design, you can start testing really small. You can get in there early. You can start um, changing things rapidly to almost, you know, work with your audience and co-design with your audience. How much has that changed since you got started in the world of digital? Because... You know, I guess even before I knew the work that you were doing with the Swarm, I was conscious that digital and particularly different forms of content had been something that you'd been working on for a good long time. I mean, going, you know, way back to the time when the, the web, I guess, was seen as a, a slightly different kind of a place. Has that changed for you over the time of, uh, of doing it? You know, that sense that you talk about being able to iterate quickly and being able to incorporate you know, user data and user feedback into that. Um, was that the way it was when you got started? I mean, I think, I, I, I think this goes in waves in terms of like how um, fluid and adaptable the tools that we're working with are. You know, when I really, really, really first started, um, you know, one of my favorite war stories is that I was a intern um, and I hand coded the Washington Post's first website in Notepad um, and you know what I could change things really fast then in fact I could change just about anything that I wanted um, okay and, so and, you this know, is a story that, the, that I haven't the, heard before so t t tell me about how this came about with the Washington Post one of my teachers was um and one of my lecturers at university was was working there, and she said, "We're trying to make this thing called a website. Does anyone know this thing called HMLT that you that you do to make websites?" And I said, "I think it's HTML." And I put my hand up, and um, and I went and uh, sat down with a couple of other guys. I didn't do it like completely by myself, and we, you know, put together a website for the Washington Post, and then we just started updating it. And we would update it, you know, in Notepad. And there was one image; it was like the masthead, and that was it. And a bunch of links to articles that we would get off the pages from the newsroom. And um, I was kind of sitting there going, "Wow, this is pretty cool." They let me update the the. the page of the Washington Post. Um, and it was largely because it was off everybody's radar. And it was, uh, you know, if, if we had a couple of hits a day at that point, um, this is really, really early days, we got really excited. So, but you know, when you were just working with Notepad, and nobody looking over your shoulder, really, um, you could do an awful lot. And then there was a kind of era of like these very like high spec, polished, finished websites that you'd like spend months and months and months working on and put them there and then that would be the website for something for a long time and you'd move on to another one and leave it behind and and the tools you know that were involved in putting those things together were not easy to use not very responsive and you know now and then we got into the whole world of native mobile apps um which you know have great advantages a lot of the time but they can also be incredibly rigid and difficult to change um, but we're getting to a point now where I feel like the tools that we use, both for design and for uh, coding and, you know, bringing the whole ecosystem together is really great. And, you know, we're also in a world where we have really good analytics now, really, really good testing tools. And we're able to actually, you know, see, in a, you know, incredible speed, like what people are doing with the stuff that we use. And, you know, sometimes people think about really high tech ways of doing that. But I think one of the things that I've been doing us too, that's really cool and, and is important to remember in, in, in this space is like, you don't necessarily have to build software to start trying something and start testing ideas with customers. You know, we'll, we'll, you know, we do pen prototypes where we just draw a bunch of screens or draw something and talk to consumers about it or get them to draw with us and even just start responding straight away. So like, okay, this is what we thought the consumer need is. This is what they actually said the first conversation we had with them two days after we had the idea. And that's certainly something that is 
changing and shifting and I think, you know, really, really exciting. It, it is. It's such an interesting cycle that because I suppose as these things evolve and digital became a more significant part of company strategies and for many companies became the strategy. Naturally, there's a demand that the tools evolve to support that. So you start getting process and tools and depth and capability around the design tools, around the tools that you're using for user testing, which is great up to a point. But then there is always that inherent risk that as you add more layers of process, the process itself starts to define what you can and can't do and you get get locked into it and the overall goal of yeah how close can we get to understanding users true motivations and behavior or how can we create something which is new or fit for purpose or better for purpose using a particular set of of design tools or, or techniques starts to get constrained by the the existence of those tools um and it kind of makes me wonder you know what 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 sort of conditions do you see today where you can feel that same sort of parallel in terms of the excitement of being able to experiment with new things and push clients i guess now in in an agency role to do things which are genuinely groundbreaking which sort of replicate that same excitement and, and possibility that you might have felt when it was notepad and the washington post and you could do what you wanted simply because there weren't the tools and people weren't looking over your shoulder yeah i think um one of the things that we do here at us too is we do a lot of work using uh, frameworks inspired by the government digital services framework um and you know that uh, advocates an approach of discovery alpha beta live and um in that case there's a, a lot of times where in discovery and alpha we're working like really really quickly and just uh, ramping up experiments where we're able to get clients learning really 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 quickly and i think that's where that excitement comes because a lot of times um you know we've heard about people saying oh yeah you know proposition development in our company it takes you know about six months to come up with a new proposition and start to um you know get it live and then we get it live and then we find out it's wrong and then we have to go back to the drawing board and with the process that we've been using here you know we're able to you know define a proposition with a reasonable amount of certainty within kind of 4 to 6 weeks based off of some you know non-functional testing and then move into an alpha phase where we're ramping up lots of little experiments to help us start to learn about the project and get real data from real customers in the real environment and clients' eyes really light up when you're able to start to do that sort of thing very, very quickly. And when you're also able to start to say, okay, we've got some real data here. And actually, you know, within six, eight, 10 weeks, we're able to start saying, okay, this is what's strong about this proposition. This is what's not. This is what's good about this service. This is what needs development. And start to be able to inform a go-no-go decision and a business case for these things in an incredibly quick amount of time. Now, when we start building industrial strength software, that's where obviously we have to be a lot more careful and we have to, you know, that's a real craft skill that our developers have. Um, and so it moves slower and it's, it, it, you know, obviously not as nimble, but that has a whole different set of sort of excitement attached to it as well when you start to see the stuff coming live. But, um, you know, it's incredible within a sort of alpha phase um, how much you can learn very, very quickly. We um, were working with one very big client and um, uh, one of the people I had to pitch it to was the chief financial officer of the company who, you know, by nature, it's chief commercial officer is not going to be the most um, risk-prone person in an organization, and they're not going to necessarily be the one who's up for uh, words like alpha and experiment and innovation. And I said, you know, let us do this. 
and you're going to get real data from real customers in the real environment to build the onwards business case. Otherwise, your alternative is get a bunch of analysts and consultants to work off of desk research that's not related to your business or your customers or your environment to make your, your onwards business case, which do you think is going to be better? And he just went, I want that data. And we went on with the project. So it shows how you can do that like quick, nimble design type of work and actually get something really valuable and meaningful out of it. And I think that's quite exciting. Is it in those sort of scenarios where you feel that that definition of being a strategist, how you identify your role now at us too, is that it's most effective? Oh, um, I haven't thought about it like that, but I think that is where, um, or that's an example of where I'm really helping businesses to understand the value of design and the value that design can bring in their organizations. You know, you meet a lot of organizations who at the start, you know, you find out like the designers there are making the brochure um, or uh, prettying up presentations to make sure they meet like the look of the company. And um, there's not a real appreciation for what design can do in terms of uh, changing and, and transforming a business. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that that is a great example of where that, that's come to light. So one of the things which I've sort of noticed, I guess, with your career trajectory over the years um, is that there seems to be a bit of a, a running theme around an interest in transport. I mean, you had the time at Transport for London, uh, but also that you've worked on various things to do with cars and journeys. I think you spoke a bit at uh, our MEX event uh, about one of the projects there that you were working on over the years. Do you trace that back to anything in particular or is that just coincidence? I think a lot of it has to do with just having grown up in the suburbs and then spent my whole adult life in cities, New York and London, and just living it and experiencing it firsthand. I think, you know, if you have a design mindset, you're always looking for the pain point. You're always looking for what you can fix and make better. And I suppose (laughs) I've had a lot of mornings um, with colleagues, uh, with friends, with family members where transportation is what ruins your day um, or ruins your morning and just kind of inspires you to want to make things better. And then I think on top of that, we've got the whole um, climate crisis upon us. And, um, you know, there's no no one single cause to that, but um, transportation is certainly making a um, contribution to that. And I think that's, you know, making your very local environment better in a way that can also help the global environment is something that's quite inspiring. There's a blog post actually on the Us2 blog uh, that I wrote about like designing to clean up cities. Um, might be interesting to some of the people listening to this. Absolutely, yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes so that listeners can go and take a look at that. And I know the Us2 blog as a whole is quite a rich resource. You know, that's one of the things I've always admired about Us2 as a company is the degree to which uh, everyone there seems keen on sharing what's going on and sharing examples of where they're discovering best practice. I mean, what was it that brought you to the role at Us2 in the first place? I was working with Us2 on the client side, actually, on a transport project um, that uh, we had done uh, in consortium with some government funding with Transport for London. And um, I was just incredibly attracted to the ways of working here and the environment, the people. Um, I think if you talk to anybody at Us2 and say, what do you like about it? I think it's always the people um, is one of the things that just comes out really strongly. And that that was certainly the case for me. 
And um, when the project ended with TFL and the opportunity came up to uh, come and work over here, um, I, something I couldn't really say no to. And it's actually three years ago tomorrow. Oh, well, congratulations on the, the work anniversary. I'm sure LinkedIn will be popping up a suitably um, big notice banner to let uh, let everyone know that it's your three-year work anniversary. Yes, great. Thank you, LinkedIn. <laughs> Um, well, well, I wanted to just go back to one thing that you said a second ago, um, and you're talking about how everyone at us two is really keen on sharing. And I think, you know, for anyone who's listening who wants to know a bit more about us two and what we do and how we work, I think that's just a huge part of what we do. And I don't just mean blogging, I mean, and, and doing interviews like this, I mean, we work really, really in the open. Like, we don't, like, when we work with a client, we go, here's our workspace, come and join us muck in if you want to don't muck in if you don't want to um there's no secrets um and that also applies between teams and team members um all the work we do is in the open there's no secret files or folders or at least none that anyone's let me know about um and it sounds really really easy to do that but actually it's um surprisingly difficult sometimes um to get used to that when you haven't worked that way before when you have departmental folders and when you have meetings you know everybody here is pretty much welcome at whatever meeting they want to go to um you know w w within professional reason um and so you know um you could be working with someone who's very very junior and you know they're welcome to come to the you know the account meetings um you can be working with a client and you know let them see the drawings um of what you're doing and be ready to rip them up and throw them away you know we don't ever kind of do the the big agency reveal really unless it's in a pitch and that's the only way it can be done i always say you know the lifting the silver lid off the steaming plate of food um often leads to lifting a silver plate off a steaming pile of something else um when you do that to clients because there's nothing worse than doing that and having the client go i hate it or having the customers go i'm not using this right so by working in the open constantly it just really lets us improve the, the, the quality of what we're doing the value of what we're doing does it change the way you relate to the work personally you're working in a culture with that sort of openness i think so i think i think it's a bit of a learning curve for anyone when they start working here to work that way or or, or any environment where you're working that way because you have to be ready for people to be able to see your drafts to see your work in progress and you know that could be like a pull request you're working on which i don't by the way um or it could be sketches that you're doing or a presentation that's half finished and it become it, it really changes a lot when you're sitting next to your client a lot of the time and going hey what do you reckon about this thing i'm going to put in the presentation or you know you leave it on the drive and you know that they will probably pop in overnight and have a read and give you feedback the next day but it makes it better for sure it's just a learning process to go through um, and you have to learn to be a lot less precious about your work because you don't have time to kind of necessarily go through and craft and hone and perfect before people start to see things and give you feedback and talk about it and that's you know, a very different way of doing things from the olden days of, you know, art directors, the art boards that no one ever saw until the, you know, sheet was pulled off of them in a presentation on a fancy easel with the big idea. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting way to work and, and I really enjoy it. Well, I mean, perhaps uh, indicative of and maybe one of the things which is also enabling this kind of work to have a wider impact within organisations, because if there is that expectation that it's going to be collaborative and that people at all levels are going to be able to pitch into it, not just within your organisation as an agency at somewhere like us too, but within the clients that you're working with, then my 
gut feel is that naturally that helps to sort of break down some of those silos which might develop around a project and limit its effectiveness uh, if it does sort of get the go-ahead and start to, to go out into the public domain. Already you've started to build in that sense that this is something which might have a wider impact within an organisation if you start by working in that way for, from the outset. Yeah, absolutely. And it builds up a lot of trust too. I don't know if you've seen the publicity around the book that we published recently called Make, Learn, Change. No, I've not. So it's our kind of um, digital transformation guide. And the theme is digital transformation is a marathon, not a sprint. And it grew out of our work with clients where we're doing exactly what you were just saying, working in the open, building up that trusting relationship, et cetera. And what we started to find out was that custom uh, clients rather wanted uh, not just to have the type of work that we did, but they wanted to work in the way that we did. And what we realized was that we were helping a lot of companies to work in a digital way that helped them to manage digital products and services that we were making for them. And that actually to succeed in digital, you need to be able to do both, right? Like if we just give you the greatest digital storefront or the greatest digital service that does, you know, fill in the blank, if you don't work in a digital way, which includes working in the open, which includes responding to feedback incredibly quickly, you're not going to be able to manage and run that product and, and turn it into a successful business ongoing. And um, what we found was that um, we were, when we worked with our clients, we stepped back and looked at it. We said, okay, well, what are we doing here that's really, really creating the value for them? Because it's not just giving them an app. It's not just doing a web service. It's not just helping them identify a digital opportunity. And we discovered that it was that when we make together, we can learn together and change together. And that's where the title of the book came from. And, you know, we've been doing that with um, a number of big clients. Um, I've been working with three, the mobile network for the last almost oh, almost two years on that type of work. And we've done similar work with co-op and uh, with other clients as well, um, in the medical space, auto space, et cetera. And, um, you know, we've got the whole book about that, but it, it, you know, people can download that if they want to, but it really is about a way of working. And that's really where we're able to bring the value in alongside the design stuff that we do for people. Is that something which you've noticed evolving over the time in the different companies that you've worked with? Because, well, we've talked a little bit about your time at Transport for London, but also you spent a good bit of your career at the BBC as well. In fact, I think when you spoke first at our MEX conference was when you're in the role as the, the managing editor of BBC Mobile. And does that give you a sort of set of benchmarks to compare and contrast those different working cultures at, at different periods during the evolution of digital and its significance to, to companies' overall strategies? I mean, uh, that's a big question. I think what I could say is that over the years, uh, one of the things that I've seen is digital, uh, or what you know, barely even called that, going from something that the interns were doing with notepad in a dark corner of the room at night through to a thing that was on the side of the main business through to starting to actually disrupt and become the main business. And, you know, we do have the big digital businesses out there now, um, you know, that are doing the disruption, the Monzos, the Airbnbs, etc. But there's a lot of other businesses where this is waiting to happen. And I think the thing that it's really interesting right now is we're seeing a lot of businesses where digital is disrupting but has not yet disrupted and within the sort of big 
corporate space, which is you know where a lot of our clients, not all of them, but a lot of them are, um, there's, there's a human change that has to happen um, alongside the technological change, alongside the product change, um, in order to keep up with where the consumers are going. And um, you know, I've, de- I've definitely seen that change happen. I think w- one thing that's really interesting now, especially with the big corporate tech clients and companies out there, is that they all became technologically enabled as part of the technological revolution in the 80s, 90s. Um, and, you know, that got them to the point where they could um, spin up a website, use email, messaging, etc. But a lot, a lot, a lot of um, very expensive corporate enterprise software went in at that point. And now the pace of change that's being demanded in a digital world can't keep up with that. And that means that not just the technology has to change quickly, but people and their ways of working have to change quickly too. And I think that's what's really exciting with what I'm working on now is being able to help people, organizations, technology change to meet the consumer demands really, really quickly. Do you ever miss being in a media company per se? Because I guess over the course of your career, that's something which is featured quite heavily is a, a sense of being involved in the production of media of some kind. I mean, obviously the BBC, but also I know you had time with The Economist and, and various other um, companies, which I guess would be seen mainly as as media producers. Is that something that you ever miss, that sense of being involved in that, that world of content production? Uh, to be honest, not too much. Um, I sort of feel like that was a phase in my career that was great and I loved it. I think, you know, I'll ne- I wouldn't trade anything for my time at the BBC. You know, I learned and grew so much while I was there as a creative professional um, and anyone who gets a chance to work there should do it because it's it's just an incredible training ground and, and a real treasure for the UK to have for its creative industries. Um, I think, you know, the really nice part about working in the media especially when you're working in kind of daily sort of space is that you get to see what you're producing really really quickly you get to see the reaction to it really really quickly and so and that you know it might be an article or it might be a tweet or it might be um something much more long form and much more crafted um and i think the thing that i still love is when i see something i've worked on go live so while i'm not involved in media production anymore um something that we uh did some design work for with Adidas went live uh, at the end of last week, and boy was that exciting! You know, it 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 was so cool to just go, I made that, <laughs> and be able to point at it and see it there. And the piece of work involved some voting uh, alongside of the you know the main thing that was going on, and I could see people voting live on it, and I was like, that's so great! Someone's using the thing that I worked on, and it's that sense of you know satisfaction that I suppose is shared across um, everything that I've worked on. Well, I guess that that comes back in some ways to where we started about that question of sort of when you feel like you're becoming a designer, if that's the right word for it. But maybe maybe creator is a better and broader sort of term for that. But it seems to be a characteristic with everyone that I've spoken to on this podcast who've been involved with our, our next community over the years. For, for those who see themselves as creators, I think that is a, a consistent um, defining characteristic, if you like, that seems to be there is that that love of firstly wanting to create something and then share it with the world and, and see that that reaction to it that that seems to be something which is uh, pretty consistent among people who see themselves in that way but has it always been uh, about just doing that in the, the digital environment for you or when you think back were there times where you had that sort of passion or, or maybe you still do for for other mediums as well you know, more, more analog mediums no i mean i think um 
to to be honest, it's you know all the work I've ever really done is a digital in 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 some way or another. Um, that might be digital video, or it might be game related, or it might be something much more straightforward. But I, I, I suppose I got really lucky and um, finished uh, university in uh, 1997. I was doing uh, internships in 1996, uh, which makes me sound incredibly old now. But um, what it meant was that I was kind of coming out of university into my first professional roles um, at an incredibly cool time where you could really do a lot of experimentation and really take advantage of what was the, quote, new media at the time. Um, I'm sure you remember new media departments, Merrick. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> CD-ROMs and all that glorious stuff. Yeah, yeah. Kiosks. I mean, I guess one of the reasons for, for asking the questions all about different mediums is, you know, when I think back to, I think it was perhaps your very first talk at one of our MEX conferences, and kind of at the heart of it was this idea about storytelling across multiple screens and multiple touch points of, of different kinds, which, I mean, this was probably nearly 10 years ago now, but I think it's something that we sort of take a little bit for granted today that at least content is going to be replicable across any screen that we want it to be, even if maybe the techniques for telling those stories and combining those touch points in interesting ways is, is still developing. But that was something that you were thinking about very early on. And mm. I just wonder how you feel about that now when you look back at that arc and how those different techniques have evolved and, and whether or not that original vision of sort of using all of these different digital touch points, which now, if anything, you know, there are more than ever, whether we're talking about smartwatches or speakers or car dashboards, you know, we're surrounded by all of these digital touch points now whether we've yet fully tapped the potential for that kind of storytelling across those multiple different places it's a really interesting question and uh it's a good thing to hold me to account for 10 years later merrick um, <laughs> i think um the thing that you always go back to if you're trying to tell a story and and you know i even use this now in work that's not editorial at all um is you know what's the core emotional experience you want the person to have it's not about functionality it's not about devices it's about like what's the core emotional experience and um sometimes people look at me a little bit crazily when i say that but it's like ultimately you're trying to have an effect on people now that might be form them it might be to get them to buy something it might be to help them relax you know it, it could be all sorts of things but i think you know one way or another what, what, whatever the technology is whatever the platform is whatever the situation is if you ask yourself that as a starting point and try and work outwards from there then you get to some really interesting places and i think you know some of the stuff that i was talking about back then was probably kind of bonkers and off the wall in terms of the types of experiences that we might be able to expect but you know i, I think that might have been pre in the world before the iphone um you, you can tell me if i'm right or wrong on that Marek, but it was you know it's very very early days um and so i don't think things have unfolded necessarily exactly the same way as i thought they would but at the same time i think we're still doing the same thing and i think the trick is really striving to give people the simplicity that they need across those things to get to the emotional experience that you want them to have. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, that at heart you're trying to get to that that emotional connection and that everything should build off from that. Um, I suppose for me personally, where I, I feel like maybe the vision has 
perhaps not yet been fulfilled is in the, the risks that people are willing to to take with that. Uh, we, we've seen a real improvement in being able to access essentially the same pieces of content in optimized forms across pretty much any touchscreen that you want and being able to interact with your sort of digital accounts, digital identity through these different touch points in ways that are quite highly optimized now. You know, we're getting to the point now where uh, voice user interfaces are actually, you know, reasonably efficient mm. and, and, and good and provide a, a fairly compelling experience in some fairly sort of limited tight use cases. But that that sort of bravery around experimenting a bit about how you can do that in a more playful way and how you can combine some of those touch points in unexpected ways. Um, I'm, I'm slightly disappointed as a whole with how the industry hasn't really picked that up and run with it, but then perhaps it's still just a little too early. You know, it wouldn't be the first time in the technology industry where there's a huge amount of excitement around things as they become possible, lots of hope, and then a quiet period where things don't quite work out as expected, but then it comes back even stronger and becomes even more significant than we first anticipated. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, when I, uh, I don't think I was making this distinction when I talked at Max all those years ago, but one thing that sort of became apparent after that period was that the world of digital entertainment, digital content was moving kind of into uh, two branches for a little while. One of them was what I would have at the time called multi-platform content, and that was about being able to get any asset any device, anywhere, anytime, with your account, all that like smooth interoperability. And that's really matured and blossomed. And there's a lot of systems to make that really, really easy for broadcasters and content makers, etc. Um, and, you know, the uh, uh, web pages, mobile sites, they've, you know, be able to become reactive so you can show the right content on the right device, all that. Um, it, you know, and there's really good systems for making that sort of multi-platform experience of content happen. The other branch that was sort of splitting off for a while was what people were calling transmedia or gamified content. And this was where people were trying to experiment with part of a story on this device and part of a story on that device and part of an experience over here and part of an experience over there and layering experiences and platforms together in really interesting ways. And there's a lot of prototyping and there was some really, really cool, quite artistic projects that came out of that actually there's some really amazing um immersive multi-platform documentary stuff that was going on in canada there are some cool um immersive alternate reality games that were coming out of california um, the batman one being the one that really uh, took the cake um and kind of blew everyone's minds on the conference circuit um but they struggled to get big engagement and i think part of that is partially because they were early um like you said i think part of it was that they were too distributed for people to actually be able to pick up on all the hooks or if someone gave you a key to this and told you how to do it that was fine but actually my mom couldn't do it um and actually most people couldn't do it and then the you know the other thing that was a, a big problem in that space is is the opposite of what happened with multi-platform was every time you wanted to do one of these things you needed to bespoke the tools to do it and when that happens it becomes impossible for media companies to be able to do these in an economical um, an efficient way. So the cost of all the projects that kind of grabbed the headlines in that world were absolutely phenomenal and also absolutely tiny engagement, which is a risk profile that uh, media companies just don't have much appetite for. So I do hope that some of that stuff comes back and some of that thinking comes back as AR and VR um, develop more and as digital is able to prove that it does deliver value and that it's not just a side project in these companies. 
But I, you know, I definitely think you know multi-platform and seamless experiences where things have taken off, and actually that makes a lot of sense. But I can see the sort of disappointment around you know the kind of transmedia uh, work as well. You know, I, th- I think actually it's the games industry that could pick that up and make that happen in a really big way. Um, you know, they're doing stuff like franchising the content, uh, you know, from the games into the cinema and in, you know, all, all sorts of places like that. So what's to say that they can't actually, you know, start to really, really, truly multi-platform those things in, a, in, in cool and exciting ways. And they've got the budgets for it much more than, you know, small independent documentary makers or um you know, film institutes from various different countries who've, you know, tried nobly to uh, experiment in these places, but not really been able to quite build that impact that you'd want. Uh, yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, you need you need the seeds to be sown, but they need to be sown in fertile ground. And as you say, perhaps it is the gaming industry where they have the greatest chance of, of really germinating and becoming something interesting. I do wonder as well whether, I mean, you alluded there to um, some of the ways in which that experimentation was starting to branch out into things like augmented and virtual reality, whether that's a sort of missing piece of the technological puzzle that might help to connect all of this together. Because while clearly there have been lots of things that have happened in that area, there hasn't really been a silver bullet yet in the way that something like the iPhone transformed the smartphone world, Mm. where we've got a really good mass market consumer grade thing that people can experience a very different augmented or virtual reality user experience you know there's been lots of experimental stuff lots of different approaches in different companies but nothing that's really stuck and if that is solved in some way by an existing company a new player maybe that's something which starts to tip the balance towards some more experimentation in, in that kind of area but look i'm conscious of, of time as well jason and that um you know you've very kindly given up some of your data to come on the show and talk about this but there's one other thing which i wanted to ask you given um how broad um a career you've had in being able to try all these these different things and being involved in these different areas but is there anything which is left undone at this stage anything which you really wish you'll have a chance to work on um during your career but you haven't yet had a chance to get your teeth into oh gosh i always save the easiest question for last you yeah say. i mean i think the thing that i would love to see as as this sort of category is some really great digital physical integration i feel like um th- there there's elements of that there and i think mobile smartphones have helped us to do that in a in a big way but um, I still don't necessarily feel like I've ever encountered an absolutely amazing digital physical integration between you know space and technology in a way that doesn't feel gimmicky or that doesn't feel bolted on. It certainly doesn't use QR codes, you know. So I, and and I, and I suppose that is a, a type of augmentation, isn't it? But it's augmentation of the real world rather than sort of augmented reality that feels a bit cheesy and shaky and gimmicky. Um, and maybe that's. What, where that can be solved but um i don't know what it is yet and i I suppose that in large part kind of sums up my career is a lot of times i've gone into stuff not knowing what we'd come out with and that's the exciting part about it i feel like this could be the next skunk works project brewing in the basement of one of the us two buildings somewhere around the world so you'll have to keep in touch and let us know how that works out but thank you thanks for having me Oh, not at all. It's been really good to catch up after a few years. And well, it's been interesting to be uh, held to account for something I gave in a conference speech 10 years ago or, or more. Um, <laughs> and see if I could, uh, you know, if, if, if I was right or wrong on that. So uh, thanks for doing that. It's great to talk to you. Not at all. Nice catching up, Jason. Okay, thanks, Merrick. Bye.
So that was Jason DePonte, Strategy Principal at Us2. And as always, if you head over to mobileuserexperience.com and take a look in the podcast section, that's where you'll find a post for this episode uh, with links to all of the different bits that Jason and I talked about in case there's anything that you want to follow up on and find out more about. And while you're there, um, do me a favor, help me spread the word about this podcast. Just have a think about who you know who might enjoy listening to this episode or or to the series as a whole uh, and just send them the link to it. Uh, I always post this stuff on LinkedIn, Twitter and whatever to get the word out there through our existing MEX channels. But I know from experience, the best way to get new people involved in our MEX community really is through these kind of word of mouth introductions. Now, if you've been following MEX for a while, you'll probably know that its origins yeah, way back in the mists of time, very much in the world of mobile telecoms and smartphones. That M in MEX originally stood for mobile user experience. And although these days the events and the podcasts and all the conversations that we have involve a much wider, much broader audience than, than just that mobile world, um, I'm still always intrigued by what's going on in the mobile devices. And there are three things that have happened since the last time I recorded an episode of this podcast, which have caught my attention. And I thought you might have some thoughts on too. So the first is Microsoft. Now, I'm not going to rehash Microsoft's potted history in mobile. Um, Suffice to say that if you have also spent the last 20 years or so as I have in this industry, then you too will have seen attempt after attempt by Microsoft to really make something happen in mobile. And to be frank, it, it just hasn't for them. They're trying again. Yes, they're definitely giving it another go. So they've pre-announced the Surface Neo and the Surface Duo, two sort of folding mobile devices shaped a bit like books, and both with a focus on that nebulous demographic of mobile professionals. I'm not quite sure what that means these days, and I'm not certain particularly that Microsoft does either, but they're saying these devices will be with us by the end of 2020, i.e. just over a year's time from now. Now, they look good. I mean, Surface hardware usually does. But I've got to say it, I'm going to say it now, that's not enough. The very fact that they're pre-announcing these a year in advance suggests to me that this is actually quite a defensive move, and it's motivated by that realisation that the likes of Samsung and Huawei are going to be out there probably for 9 to 12 months ahead of them with their own bendable folding smartphones. And frankly, the, the Samsung and the Huawei stuff looks better. Um, but the crucial thing here is not how these things look, but how the software experience that they offer provides something which is genuinely different to the user. You know, I don't see it with Microsoft stuff. Not yet. It doesn't look to me as if nearly enough attention has been given to what it really means to have two screens in a mobile device, because really it's not about how many individual hardware panels there are that are capable of displaying content. It's about whether or not the creators of the operating system behind it have truly architected thing around the concept of multiple spatial zones and have got ways of interacting with those different spatial zones that creates a multiplier effect of functionality. Now, unless Microsoft are planning on spending the next year perfecting that and ensuring that this isn't just about looking at sort of two pages of a digital book side by side, I just don't see this being the breakthrough that they've been longing for in mobile for so many decades. 
so that's thing number one, good old Microsoft, and it'll be intriguing to see what, what happens there. And the other two things I wanted to remark upon are Essential and, well, a company called Remarkable itself. So let's talk about Essential first. Now, this is a company which was founded by one of the originators of Android. He's a chap called Andy Rubin. And if you spend a bit of time Googling him, and that's a whole other story. But anyway, Essential put out its first phone about 18 months ago, a device called the PH1. Really beautifully made thing, using ceramic and titanium. And I found it notable because it carried no logo at all. Personally, I've got a lot of time for products that are brave enough to sort of stand on the quality of their materials and their form without the need to carry that big shouty company tattoo on the back of them. But this PH1 didn't sell. Um, Essential also had this vision for a series of snap-on accessories, and that didn't really work out either. But credit to the company, they've actually kept it far better supported with software updates than pretty much any other device on the market. Um, In fact, sometimes I think these things get Android updates before even Google's own Pixel phones do. Now, I'd imagine that they're going to fade away or be acquired like so many other new manufacturers, and who knows, perhaps they still will. Uh, But it seems from some bits that Andy Rubin posted on his Twitter account in the last few days that they're certainly going to have at least one more crack at trying to do something a bit different. Uh, And I'll link those images from Twitter in the show notes at mobileuserexperience.com so you can see for yourself. But these are genuinely different looking smartphones. They're sort of extremely elongated in the shape they have. They're using these stunningly beautiful, colourful materials. And to my mind, I think they look as if they're being designed more as sort of a remote control for life and the other smart devices in your world than as a traditional kind of communicator-driven smartphone. Um, In fact, I wouldn't be surprised at all if actually we see them being launched by Essential with a range of smart home accessories that kind of dovetail with that for that, that very purpose. And it's heartening, you know, to see a new company surviving long enough to do something different in this market. Uh, And the same is true of this company called Remarkable. Um, So this is an organization which crowdfunded a tablet with an e-ink screen about a year and a half ago. And it's one which very much conforms to those principles of quiet design, sort of a minimalist approach to digital experience, which we've been looking at in the MEX initiative for, for many years now. It does you know, just a few things, and it does them well, and it does them subtly. It's got this great responsive e-ink display, just in, in grayscale, no color, which is meant for relaxing reading and taking digital notes with this pen that feels just like writing on paper. It's got a kind of texture to it. Uh, and I saw this week that after crowdfunding that first product, um, they've just raised a $15 million Series A round from some VCs. Um, now, again, who knows if they'll survive long enough to make a really good go of this second product, um, but they've done enough to get to that next stepping stone. I think we need more of this in the world of mobile device design. Yeah, it's a sign of a healthy, flourishing ecosystem when companies are being founded and getting a chance to meet unmet needs of different types of mobile user. Uh, and I, for one, would like to see a bit more of that. So there we go. Uh, that's my little ramble on the happenings in the, the mech's world. Uh, I'm going to be back soon with another episode. But until then, especially if you've got any thoughts about um, anything that you heard in this episode and my uh, ramblings about these new devices and companies out there, do keep in touch by email. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. But thanks for listening and goodbye.